This, uh, this past week we had a fundraiser for, to, raise, uh, to raise money for the, the debt on the children's building, pay down the debt on the children's building, and there are several people in our congregation that helped with that. Sandra Ferris, Rebecca Bracknell, Michelle Collins, Dinah Tate, Tiffany Laybon, Tom Allen uh, showed up early, gave up time out of their day to, to prepare the food for us. Um, we raised about $1,500, so that's some expensive spaghetti you guys paid for, but uh, certainly you're generous in that, and we, we thank you for it. Uh, open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 13. Matthew chapter 6, we're going to be in verse 13 this morning. I was a, a senior in high school. I was in drama class, and I remember our drama teacher getting a phone call from her daughter, and she ran out of the room to take it. And she came back in, and she told us, hurry, turn on the TV, somebody has flown into the World Trade Towers. And so we rolled the TV over to where it was, we, all we could get was a little fuzzy picture and we saw these plumes of, of smoke billowing up into the morning sky over New York. As Charlie Gibson narrated what was happening. And all of us thought the same thing at the same time. Some idiot flew into one of the biggest buildings in New York. How could you do that on accident? And as we were watching, just a few moments later, a second plane hit the building right next to it. We all stood there in shock as we realized in one moment this was no accident. It was days later that we saw their pictures on the news, 19 Muslim men hijacked some planes and attacked us. Now, the phrase radical Islam, terrorism, we certainly knew those words before 9-11, but they weren't constantly in the vernacular of society until after that day. They weren't constantly in our consciousness until after that day. It changed everything forever. Do you remember the news headlines on September 10th, 2001? Will Michael Jordan come out of retirement? Gary Condit is in trouble. Exactly. <laughs> Mariah Carey's new movie Glitter is terrible. Jay-Z's new album Blueprint hits the shelves tomorrow. Those were supposed to be the headlines that day. And when we look at those headlines, we can't help but see how insignificant they are. There's a kind of innocence to them, really, that those are our biggest problems in the world. What they're a sign of is that we had no idea of the kind of battle that we were in. We had no idea that 19 men had taken up residence in our country, planning 
the worst attack on inside of our border since Pearl Harbor. We had no idea the level of hatred that some people had towards us, towards our country. We had no idea what kind of battle we were in. This morning, we're looking at the last petition in the Lord's Prayer. It's a, it's a petition, a, a plea, if you will, for God's help. It's, a, it's an awakening of sorts for the disciple of Christ to realize and to understand the nature of the battle that he is in. For many of us Christians, we're living day to day in what amounts to a pre-9-11 view of our faith. I don't mean 9-11 specifically, I just mean in our faith, when it comes to our faith, it's a spiritual pre-9-11 for us. We wake up on a daily basis and we don't realize the kind of fight that we're in and how much we require the Lord's help. With that in mind, let's look at our text in Matthew 6, 9-15. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Before we get started in this passage, there at least needs to be a, 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 just a brief conversation about the phrase that is notably missing for some of you. I know you probably have recognized. Some of you, if, particularly if you grew up in the Roman Catholic Church, you're probably used to reciting the phrase, for yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, now and forever. Amen. And many of you probably, are those same people, are wondering why when we read it every week, we don't read that phrase. And why you're seeing in the English Standard Version, if you have that translation in front of you, um, why that phrase is absent. Or why the English Standard Version and many other translations omits that line altogether. That line can be found in some translations, uh, particularly older translations like the King James Version, the New American Standard Version. Um, so if you have those translations, you'll see it in there. But the reason that it's out of the ESV and many of the modern translations is best we can tell based on the evidence that's come forward from many ancient manuscripts. The earliest and most accurate manuscripts supports the text that, is, that we've been reading every week, the text that is found in the ESV. These are the earliest and most reliable manuscripts have omitted that line. So as best we can tell, Matthew did not pin that originally, that it was penned later and was somehow included in several manuscripts later and then got included and a lot of texts go, we're not sure if that's supposed to be in there or not. So here's a note that maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. Um, So now the statement that's made there, yours is the kingdom, power and glory now and forever. There's nothing wrong with that statement. That's a true statement. Yours is the kingdom, power and glory now and forever. That's true. Except that based on the evidence, it wasn't written by Matthew. And so I hope that what I say similarly in my sermon is true. 
just 2,000 years from now, I don't want any preacher standing up behind a pulpit quoting my sermon as though it were the Bible. Okay, I think they're different. And so that's the reason it, that we've, been, we've omitted it and, and we won't talk too much about it here uh, after. Now that being said, the text that's in front of us this morning does have some challenges all its own. And if you've given this text serious thought, it can be pretty confusing as to what Jesus is actually telling us to pray for here. What is it that Jesus is actually telling us to pray? The, the petition uh, 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 to the Lord is that He would not lead us into temptation. Now, this petition has certainly led to many interpretations by many different scholars throughout the years. And for us this morning, our, what we really need to do is discern what it is that Jesus is asking us to pray for, what He actually means, and then apply it to the situations that we find ourselves in on a regular basis. And so there are at least two essentials that I want to hone in on this morning. I want to focus our attention on this morning from this petition. The first is that we must understand the nature of the battle that we're in. We must understand the nature of the battle that we're in. The petition begins with the phrase that I just read, "...and lead us not into temptation." And the reason that that's difficult to understand is because on the surface, it appears as though we're asking the, the, the holy and righteous Lord of the universe to not lead us into temptation, which raises the question, what happens if we don't pray that prayer? Would the Lord otherwise be inclined to lead us into a place where we would be tempted? Uh, this especially becomes really difficult when we look at the rest of Scripture about this issue. James tells us in 1.13, in James 1.13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. So we know that's true. So James is pretty clear that God cannot be tempted by evil, and He doesn't tempt us. And so therefore, we can't really make that argument, can we? That God leads us into temptation. Well, maybe then God doesn't tempt us directly, but maybe He leads us into places where we will be tempted. Well, James follows up verse 13 with verse 14, and he says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So it's the desire of each person that lures him into temptation. So one thing that we can easily establish very clearly with Scripture is that Jesus is not implying that if we don't pray this, then we're in danger of God leading us into temptation. But then it raises the question, why would you pray against something that can't happen anyway? Why would Jesus ask the Lord to do something that He doesn't do anyway? There's a handful of solutions that people have offered over the years, and each one of them has an argument to make, and each one of them has a really good point, and I think a lot of them are, are worth uh, discussing. We're only going to talk about one this morning, but my point is, I'm going to present my argument for how I think this text should be read, and if you've heard a different one, that's okay. We can disagree on certain passages of Scripture, and that's okay. There's a little bit of, of, of liberty there, so I think there are several ways that this text could make sense. But I think there's one that I think is the best solution. There is a, a, a grammatical expression called elitities. 
Lytotes. It's spelled L-I-T-O-T-E-S. Looks like lytotes. It's lytotes. And we use these all the time in English. But I guarantee you that probably for most of us, that was the first time we've ever heard the word lytotes. Because we almost never use that word in our, in our common uh, talk. So it's, what the definition of it is when you affirm something positive by using negatives. When you affirm something positive by using negatives. Let me give you some examples. There was not a small crowd at the Alabama game yesterday. Amen. There was not a small crowd at the Alabama game yesterday. You're actually saying there was a big crowd at the Alabama game yesterday. That's what you're, you're saying. You're affirming something positive using negatives. You might say to someone, you won't be sorry. And what you mean is, you'll be glad. But you say, you won't be sorry. I think the petition that Jesus offers is just that. It's an expression, a lightities, if you will, where Jesus says, I don't think Jesus is saying that God would be otherwise inclined to lead us into temptation if not for us praying this. I think the most logical understanding of this petition is that, uh, that Jesus is stating it negatively, what he is saying positively, what he means positively. In other words, lead us into righteousness. Lead us not into temptation. Lead us into righteousness. So Jesus is teaching the children of God to make a special plea in your prayer that God leads you into righteousness. So then the second phrase in this prayer, but deliver us from evil. I think, I think that's probably best understood is not just from evil, but specifically from the evil one, like you find in the New English Translation or the New International Version, if you have that text. So I, I don't think Jesus is praying that God just delivers us from evil generally, but praying for God to deliver us specifically from the schemes of Satan himself. So to sum up what Jesus is telling us to pray here, if we were saying it positively, is Father, lead us, your children, into righteousness and keep us from the schemes and the snares of the devil. There's an echo to this in the New Testament, in the book of James as well, where James tells us, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. James isn't describing their two processes. One where you resist the devil and the second where you draw near to God. It's not like you could do one and not do the other. For James, to draw near to God is to resist the devil. To resist the devil, rightly, is to draw near to God. That's why he leads off with the phrase, submit yourselves therefore to God. If we are to rightly call ourselves followers of Jesus if we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven, if we call ourselves children of the living God, then our desires, deep in our hearts, 
should be to be living lives of holiness, drawing ourselves closer to God and recognizing the schemes of the devil. Jesus has already called out the pure in heart in chapter 5. He refers to it, again. I think, again here in our prayers. The heart change that he's putting into place is that we would be inclined to be led into righteousness and to resist the schemes of the devil, to constantly be able to identify what those schemes are and to pursue after the righteousness that God has to offer. Now for us, it's imperative to understand the nature of the war that we're in, the war that we're facing on a daily basis. It's a spiritual war. We have to understand that. It's a spiritual war. Paul tells us in Ephesians six twelve, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the uh, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Friends, every moment of your life is a spiritual battle. And here's why it's important that you know this. When you go to work, and your boss is really starting to put the squeeze on you. And you're starting to feel a little bit uncomfortable about what he's asking you to do. It's minor compromises here and there. That's not major. It seems like you're making a mountain out of a molehill. But he's requiring you do just a little bit of compromising of your integrity. Fudging the numbers just, just a little bit. Now, some of it might be cutting corners, just ever so slight, but it's compromised nonetheless. We need to understand that's not just the way the world works. That's, just not, that's not just what it's like to be in the working world. That's not how it goes when you're an adult. That's spiritual warfare. That's how it comes. It's spiritual warfare that you're engaged in on a daily basis. See, King David didn't just become a murderer overnight. He was first a voyeur, and nobody knew it. On a roof. Solomon didn't just become an idolater. He was first a prideful womanizer. Judas didn't just become a traitor. He was first a thief. Stealing from the money bag. And that's not just people in the Bible. It applies to the present day as well. Every time we see that person that's caught for heinous crimes that are sexual in nature, rape, pedophilia, all these other things that we would look at and we would go, that's so awful. You can bet there is a browser history that is full of secret sin. Things no one knew about. Brothers and sisters, you must understand that it starts 
with small compromises. Well, I'll do it this time because, well, he is my boss after all. And the Lord wants me to put food on the table. He wants me to provide for my family. And if I say no, then the boss is probably going to fire me. It might be my job that's at stake. I don't want to rub people the wrong way. After all, it is kind of a molehill. Maybe I am making a mountain out of it. You have to understand the nature of the war that you're in because these small compromises lead to great consequences later on. And it's that same serpent of old testing the fence lines to see where the weaknesses are. It never starts with the airplane crashing into your spiritual tower. It starts with an assessment of your integrity. It starts with a willingness to compromise. You must decide now before those moments ever come, that you're going to have a spine of steel if you're going to be ready, even against the small stuff, if you're going to be ready when the bigger temptations arise. It's not just work. Men, we're assaulted online daily. It seems like every news article, every actually really benign thing you look at online has some ad that you didn't want to see or that you didn't need to see. And we don't just need to roll our eyes and think, well, that's just how it is in the online community. No, it's spiritual warfare. It's not just pornography that ensnares. It's second looks. It's sneaking peeks. It's returning to thoughts in our mind and it's entertaining those thoughts. You remember what James says, what we just read? Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. It begins with just a small desire. Something that no one else really even knows that you have. Then there's a luring and an enticing, which is temptation. Then James says in 1.15, Then desire, when it conceives, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Does that sound instantaneous to you? No. Does that sound like it's like that? It's absolutely not. Satan is constantly poking and prodding to find the weakness. And if that's not your weakness, it's something else. He's constantly poking and prodding to find out what it is. It might be images. It might be your job. It might be your integrity. It might be your anger. It might be your marriage. It might be your family relationships. It might be grudges that you're holding. Where is it? Every last one of us have weaknesses in the fence line. Do you know what they are? If we understand the nature of the war that we're in, then we're no longer looking at these as simply an issue that we have. We're we're seeing these as not just the way the world works these days. It's no longer just getting angry with the kids. All of it is, is potentially ceding ground to the devil on a regular basis because we're constantly under assault. Now to be sure, you don't need the devil to sin. 
James, in that passage, doesn't even mention the devil when it comes to sin. You're drawn away and enticed by your own desire. I've got plenty within me to sin all on my own without the need of an outside tempter. But the point remains that we're fighting against the schemes of the devil who capitalizes on our flesh that is so prone to sin on a regular basis. Now the second thing that we need to see in this passage is that we must overcome the schemes of the devil by the power of God. We must overcome the schemes of the devil by the power of God. I want you to consider for a moment why this petition is here. Why does he give us this petition? Why does he tell us to implement this in your prayers? Implement this in your prayer. Why does he tell us that? As we've gone through the Lord's Prayer, you've, you've heard me say that this is very clearly organized in two different categories. The first three petitions are directed towards God. They're God-centered, if you will. They concern God's name, God's kingdom, God's will. And the second three petitions seem to be concerning our own needs, our daily bread, our sins, and our temptation. I said about our daily bread when we got there a couple weeks ago. That even though we have bread in our pantry, God is still the provider. That we don't even provide our own food for ourselves. God is the provider of that. And then I said last week as we were talking about forgiveness, God is the provider of our forgiveness. That we need God's forgiveness. We have to go to God to get forgiveness. He has to provide us even that. We can't provide our own forgiveness. So if that's the pattern that's being set, is that it's God's provision for these things that we need, otherwise we'll starve and we'll still be in our sins. Now with that in mind, what is Jesus saying about facing the evil one? You can't resist the devil any more than you can provide your own food or forgive your own sins. You don't have the power to stare down the enemy or resist the schemes of the devil on your own. 1 Peter 5.8 tells us, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The biblical authors don't depict him as a little kitty cat, but as a hungry lion seeking to kill someone. Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, just after he reminds us that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, he reminds us then to put on the full armor of God. You remember this? You remember this passage? Many of you can probably quote it better than I can read it. But he says this in Ephesians 6, 13 to 17. It should appear on the screen behind me. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the day of in the evil day and having done all to stand firm stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances take up the shield of faith 
with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. A lot has been made about the various pieces of armor in these verses that Paul tells us to put on. Sometimes I think too much has been made about the individual pieces and what they mean. I've heard some go on about the kind of metal that's used in breastplates and shields and things like that and why that's significant to our righteousness or our whatever. I don't think that's helpful at all. But what you don't hear many people talk about is where Paul gets these items. Most of them are borrowed from the book of Isaiah, where Isaiah lays out the armor of God. Now, the book of Isaiah is 66 chapters where God levels criticism and rebuke against many, many cities. And in between those, there is promises of God's rescuing, coming from His Messiah figure. And in the book, He's often referred to as the suffering servant and sometimes as the coming king. In Isaiah 11.5, the Messiah is described like this, Righteousness shall be the belt of His waist, and faithfulness, or truth, will be the belt of His loins. Isaiah 59.17 describes the Messiah this way, He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on His head. Isaiah 52.7 describes the Messiah this way, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of Him who brings the gospel who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. What Isaiah is looking forward to is Christ. He's looking forward to the Messiah doing what Christ did. And Paul knows this. So he's saying that this fight against the enemy has already been carried out by the Messiah. By the Christ figure present in Isaiah. It's already been fought. And he's ultimately defeated the devil. But he hasn't thrown him into the lake of fire yet. He's allowed to continue to try the church. So the Lord gives you these battle-tested weapons. For the fight. But you notice they're spiritual weapons. These weapons are truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, and the only offensive weapon, the Word of God. So it's clear that we, as the people of God, Fight Satan by keeping away from falsehood, the belt of truth. By right living, the breastplate of righteousness. By hearing and proclaiming the gospel, the shoes of the gospel of peace. By continuing to believe that Jesus is the only way to God, the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation. By reading, meditating, memorizing, using the Bible before and during temptation. The sword of the Spirit. 
Brothers and sisters, the only reason that we can boldly stare down the opposition as it comes to us is because Christ has already defeated him. The word Satan comes from the Hebrew word Satan. And it means the accuser. His role is the prosecuting attorney. He tells you where you're guilty. He tells you where you're weak. He's a prosecutor. He has all the goods on you. And he regularly lays them out before you. This is what you've done. Remember this? Remember that? You know what you did. You know how guilty you are. That's his job. He's constantly laying it out in front of you. It's designed to make you feel weak. But one day, 2,000 years ago, Jesus, the sinless Lamb of God, climbed up on a cross, and there on Calvary, took the full force of the wrath of God for you and for me. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So Satan's role as the prosecuting attorney is over for those who are in Christ. He's still got the goods. He still has the file. He still has all the paperwork. He can still present them. Look, see what I've got. And they're true. That's right. It's not lying. It's true. The difference is he doesn't have a case anymore. He has to present evidence that Christ didn't die for. And of that, he has none. But this spiritual armor with which we can stare down the enemy is only given to those who have professed faith in Christ as their Savior who have repented of their sins and who have committed their lives to following Him. Do you understand what that means? That if right now you stand outside of Christ, then you face the prosecuting attorney with no defense. Let me ask you, brothers and sisters, if someone were to watch your routine for an entire day, things that you go through every day, 
What would be the evidence that you're fighting a spiritual war? What would be the evidence that they would see that this guy knows that his enemy is attacking him? This girl, she knows that from the time she opens her eyes, she is at war. What about your thoughts at work or your actions throughout the day? What about those signify that you understand where the enemy is attacking you? In order to persevere through the onslaught, in order to persevere in holiness, what is your plan of defense? What's your plan of attack? Do you recognize it right now where you're vulnerable to the enemy's attack? If a thorn in the flesh comes to you, messenger from Satan, a person, and really just draws you into despair, do you leave frustrated and breathing curses about that person under your breath? Does the person ruin your day? Does they, do they lead you into gossip around the coffee pot? Is it so bad that maybe it even leads you to question the goodness of God? Why he hasn't responded to your request for transfer? Why he continues to let this happen? I would suggest that if that's the case, you don't understand your enemy very well. And perhaps you're ill-prepared for the battle. The clock strikes midnight and everyone's in bed. And you're up late on your computer or your iPad working. Do those digital screens draw you in until you're drowning in addiction? So that you feel like you can't break free? If you've put yourself in that position, I would suggests that you don't understand your enemy and you're ill-prepared for the fight. Within the walls of our church, someone does something that you don't like, what do you do? Do you go to the person, the brother or sister in Christ, and talk to them about what's bothering you? Do you listen for their perspective? Maybe they have a reason why they did that. Or do you talk to other people about it? Do you uh, assume the worst of intentions of others? Do you whip other people up into a frenzy over it? Listen, if, if your M.O. is to discuss your frustrations with everyone else, then Satan already has a foothold in you. And he's using it on a regular basis. It's not a sin for someone to do something that you don't like necessarily. But it is a sin to complain about it to others. Watch out because he's threshing you like wheat even now. Tell me what your morning looks like. When you get up, are you setting aside time to read the scriptures? 
to dive into Bible reading and prayer and talk with the Lord, thanking Him for what He's done, adoring Him for who He is, confessing your sins before Him, asking, pleading for things that you're going to need on a daily basis? Is that how you begin your day? Now listen, I'm not saying that all of those things must be done in the morning time. It's not necessarily that you have to have a morning quiet time or you're sinning. That's not what I'm saying. However, I personally have found that to be the wisest way to approach your day. What about the rest of your day? Are you in prayer throughout the day? When temptations arise, are you meeting it with Scripture that you've taken into your heart to battle those temptations? Are you fighting back against the schemes of the devil by submitting yourself to the power of God? I promise you, Satan might not be flying a Boeing 747 for your spiritual tower just yet. But I can guarantee you, he's testing the structure. I can guarantee he's exploring the weaknesses. For every single one of us, he is figuring us all out. And you better believe that when he discovers what the weakness is, he's going to assault you there. With every weapon in his arsenal. Jesus is telling us, you need God's help. You need to ask. You need to expect him to answer. But the question for you do you know where you're being attacked? Do you know where that is? Do you know where Satan has a foothold in your life? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know where I am weak. Where I struggle. Where I'm frustrated. Where I'm exhausted. You know exactly what Satan exploits to get me. You know that for every single person in this room. Father, we pray that you deliver us daily. That you lead us into righteousness. Father, we hunger and thirst for it. We desire to be pure in heart. And yet we carry around this body of death that so easily ensnares us and falls victim to the devil's schemes. We want to be about doing your work. We want to be about doing your will 
and seeing your kingdom come on a daily basis. And yet we're fighting a battle on two fronts. So we pray for help. Lord, you know there are people in this room that are dealing with so much sin on a regular basis that they cannot see the light for the darkness. And they need anything, something to give them relief. I pray you would give it. I pray they would be so overwhelmed by your mercy and by your grace that they would run from the darkness. That you would give them the power to fight. Or so often the appetite, the desire for righteousness just disappears with sin. We need you to supply that too. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.